Welcome to Secrets True Crime, the Eric, Cates, and Gypsy story. I am your host, Amber Sitton. What is done in darkness will eventually come to light. That is the purpose of this podcast, to shine light on the story of Eric Cates, his beloved dog Gypsy, and the town of Empire, located in Walker County, Alabama. Listener discretion is advised. The subject matter may involve violence, sexual content, murder, and adult themes. It is not suitable for younger listeners. I know many of you have been waiting for far too long for an update on the Eric Cates and Gypsy case. Unfortunately, this isn't going to be the update you are all looking for. Eric's case is still an active investigation with the Alabama Attorney General's office, and we still have full faith that his case is in the right hands now and are looking forward to hopefully bringing an update soon. The update today isn't directly related to Eric's case, but there's no doubt that it is connected. I think we made it very clear that we believe that Eric's case had been intentionally mishandled and covered up by corrupt law enforcement and other officials within Walker County. While many locals desperately wanted to believe that all that corruption took place during former Walker County Sheriff Jim Underwood's and earlier administrations before Sheriff Nick Smith was elected, unfortunately, we learned pretty quickly that was not the case. In the three and a half years since we began working on Eric and Gypsy's case, we've been inundated with a flood of harrowing accounts about corrupt law enforcement within Walker County, including alarming stories of events that allegedly transpired within the confines of the Walker County Jail. When the horrific and bizarre details began to surface about the recent death of an inmate in that jail, it wasn't a surprise. While we are going to focus on the tragic and unnecessary in-custody death of Anthony Tony Don Mitchell today, know that this isn't the first time something like this has occurred. There are many others whose names should be heard too. This is one of Walker County, Alabama's dirty little secrets And now that this horrendous death is making international news, the details of some of the other deaths in and out of that jail will hopefully be brought to light too. In October 2020, Reuters published an investigation called Dying Inside, the Hidden Crisis in America's Jails. 
For their investigation, Reuters said they filed more than 1,500 public record requests to collect data on inmate populations, inmate health care, and inmate deaths from more than 500 of the nation's local jail or jail systems. They included every jail in the country with an average daily population of 750 or more inmates, as well as the 10 largest jails or jail systems in each state. The final figures reveal the total number of jail deaths in each facility over an 11-year period from 2009 through 2019. Walker County was not one of the top 10 largest jails in Alabama, but by limiting their search by the largest inmate populations, a stunning revelation was missed. Upon closer examination, data highlights a stunning discovery. Of the 10 largest jails in Alabama, Madison County had the highest number of jail deaths at 14, followed by Jefferson County Jail with 10 and Mobile County Jail with a total of nine. However, what's truly alarming is that at least 17 inmate deaths reported to us at Walker County Jail within the same 11-year time frame. And this may not even represent the complete picture. To contextualize these numbers, we compared them against the respective county populations. For instance, Madison County has a population exceeding 395,000 people. Jefferson County's population is almost 668,000 people. Mobile County has a population of 414,000 people, whereas Walker County's population is just over 65,000 people. It's startling to note that Walker County, which accounts for just 1% of Alabama's total population, has more jail deaths in that 11-year period than a metropolitan county with over 10 times the population. Further analysis of the data shows that out of the 242 jail deaths recorded in Alabama during that same period, 7% occurred in Walker County Jail. This is a striking statistic when you consider that the county's population represents only 1% of Alabama's overall population. This data is irrefutable evidence that the number of jail deaths in Walker County is alarmingly and egregiously disproportionate. As with every story that draws that international attention and scrutiny, 
the rumors and accusations are spreading through the community like wildfire. While some of these things may be proven true in time, we are going to focus on the evidence that is currently publicly available, on the specific details that were revealed through two federal lawsuits that have been filed related to this, and information obtained through our countless interviews conducted over the last few years with people who've spent much time in that jail. On January 12th, 2023, 33-year-old Anthony Mitchell was arrested by the Walker County Sheriff's Office. The day of or after Tony's arrest, the Walker County Sheriff's Office made the following post to Facebook. Thursday, the Walker County Sheriff's Office received a call from a concerned family member of a Carbon Hill man. The caller stated, that Anthony Tony Mitchell had made statements to them that raised concern, insinuating that Mitchell may harm himself or others. Deputies from our patrol division responded to the scene to perform a welfare check on that individual. When deputies arrived, they observed Mitchell in the front yard of the residence. Mitchell immediately brandished a handgun and fired at least one shot at deputies before retreating into a wooded area behind his home. A call of shots fired was announced, and all available assistance was en route. Coincidentally, the call came over the radio as our SWAT unit was finishing a training exercise. Immediately, our SWAT unit, patrol, narcotics, and investigative divisions, Sheriff Smith and others were en route to the scene. SWAT established and secured a perimeter around the home. The Walker County District Attorney's Office was made aware of the situation, and they worked quickly to secure a warrant for Mitchell with a charge of attempted murder. Investigators also began to track his cell phone location and interviewed family members near the scene. During this time, our aviation division was deployed, along with the Alabama Department of Corrections K-9 unit from Donaldson Correctional Facility. Aviation Commander Ray Capps and Deputy Pilot Cody Waldrop spotted a large metal structure in the woods just to the north of the residence. Mitchell's family members informed law enforcement that he would possibly be hiding in that structure. After the warrant was obtained, SWAT Commander Tony Reed led his men into the residence and cleared it without locating Mitchell. They then turned their attention toward the shelter mentioned previously, still unsure if Mitchell would be hiding in the woods watching them. As the SWAT unit converged onto the structure in the woods, notice what they say here, they deployed a distraction device to divert the attention of Mitchell in case he would be hiding in the building. 
They then spotted Mitchell in the building and were able to take him into custody while he was disoriented. He was immediately checked out by regional paramedical services who had staged at the scene with law enforcement. Anthony Mitchell, 33, of Carbon Hill, was booked into the Walker County Jail on charges of attempted murder. During the investigation, deputies also recovered methamphetamine, heroin, and a handgun from the location. This situation could have ended much differently if it weren't for the constant training of our department, incredible work by our dispatchers, assistance from other agencies, and the quick help of District Attorney Bill Adair's office. Thankfully, the day ended with everyone safe. In total, the Walker County Sheriff's Office Facebook page made four posts related to this incident on the day it occurred and the following day. One of the posts included a photo taken when Tony was arrested. The photo showed him in handcuffs and he was standing with two Walker County Sheriff's Office deputies. One deputy was holding on to him while the other was standing to the side, gawking at him. Tony had on a long sleeve striped polo hoodie and gray Under Armour joggers. His face and head were covered in a substance that the Walker County Sheriff's Office claimed was black spray paint. That was likely one of many lies told by the Sheriff's Office. Tony had his eyes closed in the photo, and it seemed obvious to me at that time that he likely wasn't well. In the comments section of the Sheriff's Office post, some began to make fun of Mr. Mitchell, while others who knew him expressed outrage. Many that appeared to know him well left comments explaining he was suffering from mental illness, that his father had died within recent months, and that Mr. Mitchell's mental health had taken a significant turn for the worse after that. That information was soon reinforced as photos surfaced of Mitchell before his decline. Those photos show a well-dressed, successful-looking, and happy man. Some of those photos would eventually be used in news media stories that resulted in many viewers not connecting the sheriff's office publicity of Mr. Mitchell's arrest to the events that would take place while he was in custody. The sheriff's office photo choice in their post about Mr. Mitchell's arrest was of poor taste and gave me the impression it was intended to embarrass and ridicule Tony, and the outrage over it compelled the Walker County Sheriff's Office to remove it from social media. They replaced it with a very similar photo that only showed Tony from the shoulders down, but that gesture was too little too late. The Sheriff's Office had sent the photo with their media release to all the local news media, 
and this alarming photo of him in a desperate time of need was plastered across many different outlets of news media. One local woman was so outraged, she made a social media post of her own and it was shared by hundreds of people in the county. The post said, It's easy to sit around and laugh at photos that the Walker County Sheriff's Office takes of people until it's your family member or friend. It's total BS that they have a photographer taking photos of their little excursions. It's even bigger BS uploading photos of people at their worst for everyone to point fingers and make jokes at. Updating the community on another bust is cool and all, but I think it would be just as cool to leave humiliating photos out of it. Never one to sit quietly in the face of criticism, Walker County Sheriff's Office Director of Operations Nick Key commented on one of the Sheriff's Office Facebook posts to address the negative feedback they were receiving. He wrote, Walker County on Monday, why didn't the Sheriff's Office post pictures of those criminals y'all arrested today for doing crimes? What are y'all trying to hide? We want transparency and information, and we don't care how it affects the mental health of the juveniles involved. Give us pictures. Walker County on Thursday, why would you post a picture of that guy y'all arrested? That's just cruel and mean. You're just making fun of people with mental health issues for likes and views. Pathetic. Stop giving us pictures. Absolutely nobody. Man, I'm really glad those deputies didn't kill that guy that shot at them when they were just there per request to check on his welfare. It's super cool that they went out of their way to make sure he wasn't hurt and was taken into custody peacefully. It's even cooler that he'll get actual mental health treatment right there in the jail and not from any of the concerned folks on the internet that could have helped him if they wanted to, but ignored him to the point that the police had to get involved in the first place. I really hope that deputy he shot at's mental health is doing okay, too. It's probably pretty traumatic getting shot at. I'll go ahead and make my public request right now. Mr. Key, please do provide the public with proof that Tony received that mental health treatment you said he'd get or any substantial medical care while he was in jail in custody of the Walker County Sheriff's Office. Key's flippant comment didn't age well, so naturally, it has been removed now, along with many of the Walker County Sheriff's Office other Facebook posts. Tragically, two weeks after Tony's arrest, on January 26, 2023, he died in custody of the Walker County Sheriff's Office. The events that have unfolded and brought to light in the weeks since have rocked the residents of Walker County, and the shock and outrage has extended well beyond the county lines. On February 13, 2023, two bombshell federal lawsuits were filed 
in U.S. District Court for the Northern District of Alabama Southern Division. One lawsuit was filed by the estate for Tony Mitchell, and the other was filed by a former jailer at the Walker County Jail. According to the lawsuits, on January 29th, a jailer who was not working or present the day Tony died took a series of actions that led to the public becoming aware of the circumstances related to Tony's death. Jailer Karen Kelly last saw Tony sitting on the floor of his cell at the end of her shift on the morning of January 25th, around 6 a.m., and he spoke to her as she left that day. She was off work for the next few days. When she reported for her next scheduled shift, she heard about Tony's death. She expressed her concerns to her supervisor about what happened to Tony, and her supervisor instructed her to review the surveillance video. As she searched through the video, Karen discovered video recorded at around 8.54 a.m. on January 26th, taken in the Sally Port, which is where inmates are brought in for booking into the jail. This video depicted employees of the sheriff's office carrying Mitchell in an obvious state of unconsciousness or near death and shoving his limp body into a prisoner transport vehicle, a non-medical police unit. She recorded that video using her cell phone camera on January 29th, and she sent it to her supervisor. The lawsuit states that Karen told her supervisor, Phillips, that what she had seen in the video weighed heavy on her heart, or words to that effect. And if that was somebody in her family, she would want to know the truth of what happened to him, and Lieutenant Phillips agreed with her. Karen and Phillips discussed the fact that if it was their shift, they would immediately have called an ambulance for him. The following day, on January 30th, 2023, CBS 42 published a news story about Tony's death. The story said, On Thursday, January 27th, an inmate in the Walker County Jail was provided a routine medical check by jail medical staff. Medical staff determined the inmate needed to be transported to the hospital for further evaluation, the statement said. The inmate was alert and conscious when he left the facility and arrived at the hospital. Shortly after arrival at the hospital, the inmate suffered a medical emergency and became unresponsive. Life-saving efforts were performed by hospital staff, and the inmate was ultimately revived. Unfortunately, a short time later, the inmate passed away. It is unknown at this time what could have contributed to his death. Even though the inmate's death did not occur in the jail, 
he was still in police custody, so standard protocol was followed, and the Alabama Law Enforcement Agency was contacted. SBI agents began an immediate investigation into the incident. According to one of the complaints filed in federal court, Arthur Leon T.J. Armstrong, who is the public information officer at the Walker County Sheriff's Office, is the one who issued that statement to CBS 42 News. You'll hear that statement released by Armstrong several times, so to avoid misunderstandings and confusion, I want to point out that the date provided to CBS 42 was inaccurate. Tony was transferred to the hospital on Thursday, January 26th, not the 27th. CBS 42 also revealed a couple other very pertinent details. They noted that the day Tony was arrested, he was brought before a judge, but it was noted on the court documents that he was unable to sign the paperwork. Walker County Jail has many inmates attend court appearances through video instead of attending the proceedings in person. If that is the case with Tony's appearance before a judge that day, there should be a video available, and that video would surely give great insight into Tony's true condition that day and why Tony was unable to sign paperwork. In a thorough and transparent investigation, this video will be obtained and eventually released to the public. On January 31st, 2023, five days after Mr. Mitchell's death and five days after the SBI allegedly began their immediate investigation into his death, Fox 6 News ran a story about it. A part of their story said, Aaliyah says Anthony Tony Mitchell, 33, of Carbon Hill, was arrested on January 12th and being held in the Walker County Jail. Mitchell was taken to the hospital on January 26th for an evaluation and became unresponsive at the hospital and later died. This statement by Aaliyah is a significant revelation that has unfortunately received little attention in news coverage. It appeared to reinforce the now-discredited statement made by the Walker County Sheriff's Office five days into Aaliyah's investigation. It is concerning that obtaining and reviewing the jail surveillance video was not prioritized as the first step of the investigation, which ideally would have been done on day one. It is crucial to remember that law enforcement agencies and officers are public servants and are expected to act with integrity at all times. While it is understandable that investigations may require confidentiality, it is important that any information released to the public is accurate 
and truthful. Misleading or false statements can erode public trust and confidence in law enforcement and will do nothing but fuel the fire of accusations of cover-up in Tony's death and many, many others. The lawsuit filed on behalf of former jailer Karen Kelly claims she was fired because she recorded video of the Walker County Sheriff's Office employees carrying an unconscious Mitchell out of the jail. The complaint states that she was fired in retaliation and that they violated her First and Fourteenth Amendment rights. It also says that plaintiff realized Officer Armstrong had provided a false statement to the media in what appeared to be an attempt to hide the fact that Mitchell was so close to death at the point the sheriff's office employees finally decided to take him to the hospital that it was too late for him to survive. It also states that the video and the false report to the media caused her extreme emotional distress, and she needed someone outside of her department to see what had happened, so she shared her video with a corrections officer at another law enforcement agency because somebody outside of her own employer needed to know the truth of what happened to Mitchell. Eventually, numerous people at various law enforcement agencies had possession of the video. In the following days, it began to circulate via private messages all around the local community. It even made its way to several news reporters. Shockingly, no one ever posted it publicly on social media, at least not that we are aware of. But someone did track down Tony's sister and send a copy of it to her. The video shows four Walker County Sheriff's Office jailers carrying Tony out of the jail into the sally port and placing him into the back seat of a Sheriff's Office transport vehicle. Two of the jailers carried Tony, while two others assisted by opening doors and helping to get him into the vehicle. The video is disturbing and heartbreaking, as Tony is clearly not alert and conscious. What's missing from the video is just as concerning as what is captured. Despite the gravity of the situation, there is a noticeable absence of any signs of life. Inexplicably, the jailers exhibit no sense of urgency and fail to make any attempts to administer medical assistance. Furthermore, it appears as though Tony is largely ignored with no visible attempts at communication or assessment of his condition. While the jailers did not drop him, they also did not exercise due care when placing him on the concrete floor. The distressing truth is that the video depicts a situation in which a human being in dire need of medical attention 
is not receiving the care and treatment they deserve. The biggest thing missing might be the ambulance because an ambulance wasn't called. Instead, they opted to cram his seemingly lifeless body in the back seat of a Walker County Sheriff's Office vehicle. As we mentioned, on February 13, 2023, two federal lawsuits were filed in federal court by the Birmingham law firm of Wiggins, Childs, Pantazis, Fisher, and Goldfarb, LLC, on behalf of the pending estate for Anthony Don Mitchell. The defendants named in the suit are as follows. Sheriff Nick Smith, in his individual and official capacity. Corrections Officers T.J. Armstrong, Denzel Mitchell, Braxton Key, Bailey Ganey, Catherine Klingen, Jacob Smith, Jeremy Farley, Richard Holtzman, Benjamin Shoemaker, Dayton Wakefield, Nurse Practitioner Alicia Heron, Nurse Brad Allred, and Walker County Sheriff's Office Investigator Carl Carpenter. The complaint reveals some appalling facts and claims. Much of the remainder of this episode will come directly from the complaints filed in federal court, but you will also hear pertinent information from our own interviews, and you will hear directly from the plaintiff's attorney, John Goldfarb, as he was kind enough to grant us an interview. The formal complaint submitted on behalf of Tony's estate asserts. This is one of the most appalling cases of jail abuse the country has seen. On the night of January 25th to January 26th, 2023, Anthony Don Mitchell, Tony, froze to death while incarcerated at the Walker County Jail. This case raises an appalling question. How does a man literally freeze to death while incarcerated in a modern, climate-controlled jail, in the custody and care of corrections officers? The case provides contrasting examples of both the worst of humanity and also its best. Without the malice, deliberate indifference, and failure to intervene of nearly a dozen correction officers at the jail and the cooperation of these officers and their superiors in a scheme to deprive Tony of his civil rights and ultimately his life, Tony could never have been killed, likely by being placed in a restraint chair in the jail's kitchen, walk-in freezer, or similar frigid environment, and left there for hours. Nor would he have been denied the prompt emergency medical treatment that would have saved him after his removal from that frigid place. But also, without the heroism 
of a corrections officer who dared to preserve security camera footage on her phone and get the recording to the estate, it would have been impossible for the estate to dismantle the scheme of silence and lies within the sheriff's department and reconstruct what happened to Tony on the morning of January 26, 2023. Although the medical examiner has not yet released the autopsy report, it is clear that Tony's death was wrongful, the result of horrific, malicious abuse and mountains of deliberate indifference. While Tony languished, naked and dying of hypothermia in the early morning hours of January 26th, and his chances for survival trickled away, numerous corrections officers and medical staff wandered over to his open cell door to spectate and be entertained by his condition as shown by the surveillance camera screenshots included in this complaint. Any of these individuals could have saved his life by calling 911 and summoning an ambulance. No one did. Instead, corrections officers and their commanding officers worked together in a scheme to conceal the horrific abuse, delaying medical treatment for five hours, long enough to ensure Tony did not survive to tell the story of what happened to him. The estate, pursuant to the substantive due process clause of the 14th Amendment of the United States Constitution, brings this action for redress against the corrections officers who, through their abuse of Tony, caused his death. The estate brings suit against the corrections officers who failed to intervene to prevent and stop that abuse. The estate brings suit against the corrections officers and jail medical personnel who were deliberately indifferent to Tony's serious medical needs and who failed to summon an ambulance or otherwise obtain the urgent emergency medical treatment he so obviously needed. Finally, the estate brings suit against the officials, including the sheriff and his communications officer, who ratified these other defendants' violations of Tony's constitutional rights and who also themselves actively participated in the scheme to hide and perpetuate the horrific abuse Tony suffered. As alleged below, this scheme began hours before doctors declared Tony dead, at a time when it was still possible to save his life. These claims are nothing short of shocking. Unfortunately, it appears it's not an isolated incident as the community has been plagued with a litany of stories dating back decades regarding deaths in the jail, often followed by cover-ups. And given the excessive number of jail deaths we've been able to identify, you certainly can't dismiss those stories. 
numerous lawsuits have been filed in both state and federal courts concerning these tragic incidents, with some cases still pending to this day. There are many other complaints claiming civil rights violations, and most of those are filed by the inmates themselves. Almost every single one of them were or will be dismissed based on technicalities, such as the failure to pay the filing fees, failing to attach a certified copy of jail or prison account statements for the last six months, and sometimes the inmate is released from jail or transferred to another correctional facility and the address used in the complaint is no longer valid. We've reviewed most of the complaints, and there are common themes. A significant majority of these cases involve grievous allegations of abuse and unwarranted use of force by jail personnel, along with a distressing lack of medical care for severe medical conditions, including cancer. To make matters worse, a multitude of complaints from inmates claim they are forced to sleep on concrete floors without any bedding or even a mat, like Tony. Unfortunately, the validity of these complaints rarely sees the light of day, rendering it impossible to verify their accuracy. However, it's crucial to note that several recurring themes emerge from these grievances, indicating a systematic issue within the jail. The remainder of the formal complaint is composed of an extensive array of specific claims, bolstered by 123 very detailed statements of fact. We will thoroughly review the entirety of these statements as they provide valuable insights and pertinent information. Anthony Don Mitchell, known to his family as Tony, was a 33-year-old man with a history of drug addiction. He was also a beloved son and brother. Up until late 2022, Tony lived with his father at a house on Lost Creek Road in Carbon Hill. Tony's father died in late 2022. After his father's death, Tony lived alone in the house. Tony's mother, Margaret Mitchell, paid his power and water bills and dropped off food for him. After the death of his father, in a story familiar to so many Americans, Tony appears to have spiraled into worsening drug addiction and his physical and mental health declined. Tony passed away on January 26, 2023 at Walker Baptist Medical Center while in the custody of the Walker County Sheriff's Department. He died after spending 14 days incarcerated under hellish conditions as a pretrial detainee at the Walker County Jail from January 12th to January 26th. Tony's internal body temperature was 72 degrees Fahrenheit when he arrived at Walker Baptist Hospital in the back seat of a sheriff's vehicle on the morning of January 26th brought there by sheriff's deputies who did not even bother to call an ambulance for him despite his obvious need 
for emergency medical treatment. The emergency room physician who treated Tony and spent over three hours trying to resuscitate him wrote the following note in Tony's medical records. I am not sure what circumstances the patient was held in incarceration, but it is difficult to understand a rectal temperature of 72 degrees Fahrenheit, 22 degrees centigrade, while someone is incarcerated in jail. The cause of his hypothermia is not clear. It is possible he had an underlying medical condition resulting in hypothermia. I do not know if he could have been exposed to a cold environment. I do believe that hypothermia was the ultimate cause of his death. Hypothermia is a potentially fatal medical emergency that occurs when the body loses heat faster than it can produce it due to prolonged exposure to very cold temperatures, resulting in a drop of the body's core temperature to below 95 degrees. It can occur slowly and affect the brain, leading to unawareness of the condition. How long it takes to die from hypothermia depends on factors such as the cold exposure environment, temperature, and individual health and age. In air, hypothermia can occur in minutes to hours, with death possible in under an hour with exposure to extremely cold temperatures below negative 30 degrees. Factors that can contribute to hypothermia, other than the ambient temperature, which is always a major factor, include lack of adequate clothing, low body fat percentage, metabolic disorders like diabetes, heart disease, drug and alcohol usage, malnutrition and dehydration, and brain injury or neurological disorders including dementia and other mental health conditions. The complaint notes that when Tony was arrested, he was in a psychotic and delusional state, and it describes treatment and conditions once he was in the jail that could have created further risk of developing hypothermia. As the body temperature drops, hypothermia progresses through stages with their own unique and observable symptoms. Mild hypothermia occurs as soon as the body's temperature drops below 95 degrees. Someone with mild hypothermia would show shivering, goosebumps, bluish skin, confusion, difficulty speaking clearly, memory problems, altered judgment, increased breathing rate, loss of balance, and an apathetic demeanor. Moderate hypothermia occurs between 82 and 90 degrees. During moderate hypothermia, shivering stops and the person feels very tired. They may have hallucinations and have shallow breathing and slowed reflexes and exhibit signs similar to intoxication. Their pupils may become dilated and often they will remove clothing despite their need for clothing to keep warm. When the body temperature drops to less than 82 degrees, the person is in 
severe hypothermia and may show rigid muscles and stiffness. They will become unresponsive and may pass out. Their blood pressure will become very low and eventually their breathing and heart will stop. Many people have described the booking area of the Walker County Jail as being very cold, and we've been told the cell that Mr. Mitchell was held in was one of the coldest in the facility. While it is possible that a perfect storm of Mr. Mitchell's mental and physical health condition when he was initially arrested, combined with being held for two weeks either completely naked or with only a paper-type hospital gown in a bare concrete room, with diminished ability to eat, even the scarce amount of food the Walker County Jail provides, could have resulted in him becoming hypothermic spontaneously. It is difficult to imagine his core temperature dropping 10 degrees below the threshold for severe hypothermia without exposure to an extreme, intentional, cold environment. In either scenario, though, spontaneous or deliberate exposure to cold, Mr. Mitchell would have exhibited a progression of observable symptoms that he was hypothermic. If his hypothermia were the result of a deliberate exposure to a cold environment like a cooler or freezer, he would have progressed through the stages of hypothermia much faster than in the spontaneous perfect storm scenario. To put it in perspective, if Tony's body had been discovered at home and his thermostat was set to 68 degrees and his core temperature was measured at 72 degrees, the initial estimate for his time of death would likely be around 35 hours before he was found, meaning it would take about one and a half days for a normal body to cool to 72 degrees if the ambient temperature was 68 degrees. The last member of Tony's family to interact with him was Steve Mitchell, Tony's cousin. On January 12th, Tony showed up at Steve's house. Steve had last seen his cousin three months before at the time of Tony's father's burial. Steve didn't initially recognize the man who appeared at his house. Tony, who was six foot three or four, had previously weighed around 240 pounds. Now, Steve at first took Tony for an old man. Tony was haggard and emaciated, weighing no more than 140 or 150 pounds. Wearing socks but no shoes, Tony informed Steve that he wanted to tell him a secret no one else knew. Obviously delusional, Tony told Steve that he, Tony, had a brother who had been stillborn, which was true. Tony further told Steve that his parents had put the baby brother's body in a box that was hidden in the attic of his house, which was not true and was delusional. Tony believed that he needed to tear out a wall in the attic so he could find the box his baby brother's body was in. 
Tony further believed there were two portals in his house, one to heaven and one to hell. Tony believed that he needed to put the box with his baby brother's body in the portal to heaven so his baby brother could go there. Steve realized immediately that his cousin, having lost around a 100 pounds from his healthy weight, had lived evidently in complete isolation during recent months and spouting delusions about portals to heaven and portals to hell was in serious need of psychiatric help. This was not the Tony that Steve knew and loved. Not wanting to let Tony out of his sight, Steve agreed to go with Tony to Tony's house and help him look for the box. At the house, Tony continued to be delusional, even after Steve and Steve's adult son Jacob climbed up into the attic with him and showed Tony that the box wasn't there. Tony insisted that the box with the baby brother's remains was hidden behind an exterior wall that he needed to tear out. Steve and Jacob left Tony at the house, promising to return and help Tony find the portal. Steve, not knowing how else to get help for his cousin, attempted to contact the Walker County Sheriff's Department. When he couldn't reach anyone at the Sheriff's Department, Steve eventually decided he had no choice but to call 911. Steve asked the 911 dispatcher if they could send someone to go check on his cousin. He told the dispatcher that Tony was talking out of his head about portals to heaven and hell and that he appeared to be having a mental breakdown and that he was in an extremely degraded condition. The dispatcher asked if an ambulance was needed, and Steve told her that would be a good idea. When sheriff's officers arrived at Tony's house on Lost Creek Road, they encountered Tony in the same obviously delusional and psychotic state that Steve had experienced earlier that afternoon. A written statement released from the sheriff's office on Facebook states, in part, When deputies arrived, they observed Mitchell in the front yard of the residence. Mitchell immediately brandished a handgun and fired at least one shot at deputies before retreating into a wooded area behind his home. More officers arrived, including SWAT team, and Tony was eventually arrested in the woods behind his home. A picture posted by the Sheriff's Department, reportedly within minutes of Tony's arrest, shows Tony with his face apparently covered with black spray paint. The defendant, Walker County Sheriff Nick Smith, was personally at the scene supervising Tony's detention and arrest. Likewise, the defendant, T.J. Armstrong, the public information officer for the sheriff's office, was personally at the scene. In close proximity to Tony at the time of his arrest, Armstrong took the photo of Tony being apprehended and posted it from his phone at the scene to the sheriff's department 
Facebook page. Within hours, the picture of Tony with his face spray-painted black spread across social media. Steve Mitchell, Tony's cousin, was also at the scene with Tony's mother, Margaret Mitchell, at the time of Tony's arrest. After Tony's arrest, Steve spoke with Defendant Armstrong. Armstrong told him that Tony was alive, although a little roughed up, that he had taken a shot at the officers and they were planning to charge him. At the time of his arrest, Tony suffered from serious medical and psychiatric needs, including, but not limited to, severe drug addiction, psychosis, and malnourishment. Armstrong and every other officer at the scene were consciously aware of Tony's serious medical needs. Showing this, Armstrong told Steve that they were going to set Tony's bond high enough that he would not be able to bond out and assured Steve that Tony would receive medical evaluation and treatment in jail. Armstrong told him, we're going to detox him and then we'll see how much of his brain is left or words to that effect. After observing Tony in a sheriff's department vehicle with what appeared to be black residue on his face, Steve asked Defendant Armstrong why his face looked like that. Armstrong and every other officer at the scene were consciously aware of Tony's serious medical need for acute psychiatric treatment. Showing this, Armstrong told Steve that Tony had informed the deputies that he had spray-painted his own face black because he was planning to enter a portal to hell located inside his house. We cannot help but express our skepticism regarding the notion that the dark substance found on Tony's face is black spray paint. Drawing from his extensive military background and expertise, Michael thinks the substance appears more consistent with close proximity spent powder or soot stemming from a flashbang or similar device. Remarkably, attorney John Goldfarb conveyed that he had received similar information from an independent source. We believe it is far more probable that the sheriff's office employed a flashbang and that the device detonated in his proximity or within an enclosed area. The body cam footage from the day of Tony's arrest will undoubtedly reveal the truth of the matter, and we await its release with great anticipation. The complaint notes that Tony was housed naked in a bare concrete isolation cell. He was housed as a pretrial detainee at the Walker County Jail from January 12th until his death on January 26th. For the duration of his stay at the jail, Tony was kept in an isolation cell in the booking area. These cells are not intended for housing of detainees but rather are meant to hold detainees temporarily during the booking process. The cell lacked a bed 
or other furnishings. There was only a drain in the floor that could be used as a toilet. The cell was bare cement, the equivalent of a dog kennel, but unlike a dog, Tony was not even given a mat to sleep on. Tony had no cloth uniform, possibly as a result of the jail's suicide watch protocol. In every video clip on which he appears during his incarceration until deputies at last dress him in a jail uniform just prior to transporting him to the hospital on January 26th, Tony appears completely naked. We discussed the cell Tony was kept in during our interview with the plaintiff's attorney, John Goldfarb. So I want to talk about the condition of the cell that you believe that he was being kept in. It's my understanding that he was being kept in, I think it's the cell number five, which is also known as the drunk tank. That's what we understand. We haven't obviously been in to see it or seen pictures of it, but we know that it is a cell with a cement floor, nothing in it other than a drain of some sort for him to go to the bathroom, no toilet, no sink, no mattress, no bed, no blanket. I understand it may be quite cold in there. There could be leaking water. And he is in there naked and was in there naked for, I guess, at least 10 days. So the entire, the entire time he was in the he was locked up. He was in there without any clothing. So about two weeks then? Yes. Okay. The cell has been described to me, you know, from people who have firsthand knowledge of it, that, you know, it, it, like you said, it doesn't have a toilet, it doesn't have a sink, and it has a drain in the floor that has a metal grate that covers it. And so, you know, I was told that, you know, they can urinate in the drain. But, you know, if they have to go to the bathroom, otherwise, there's nowhere to go except in the floor. That's what I understand as well. I believe you can see in or see out of the cell, understanding that there's some type of plastic over it, but you can see around it and you can hear what's going on in there. From the pictures we've seen, a lot of the times he's close to the door, just laying down naked. I understand that as far as being naked, he had some type of thin material, almost like what a surgical mask is made out of, paper that he was given, uh, but no clothing until the day he died. Do you have information that, that it was reported that oftentimes that he had been covered in feces? I've heard that. They were cleaning the cell at one point. I've seen in one of the videos, so I wouldn't doubt that there was feces all over the place. I don't know how often they took him to the bathroom, or how often they took him to the shower to clean himself up, but there was no place for him to defecate. Oh, I just I saw I noticed in the in the video and the photos, it looked like that there was a lot of garbage, a lot of garbage yeah. in the floor. What my understanding from that is is they would because he was in the suicide watch, they can't give him utensils or bowls, so they're giving his food in bags. But if they also my understanding is they took his teeth shortly after he arrived in the jail. And so without any teeth, he can't choose. So I don't know if they're putting oatmeal or I don't know how they could put oatmeal or soup in a bag. 
So I don't know how he could eat without his teeth. So he was ex obviously extremely malnourished. I'm just thinking, I mean, if they're not cleaning up the garbage, I mean, that was, I could see a lot of, of garbage. I mean, it, it had obviously been stacking up in there for a while. And he has nothing to sit on or lay on. All he has is the concrete floor, which is covered in garbage, and he has no place to use the bathroom. He's essentially forced to lay in his his own feces and garbage. That's what it looks like to us. In, in your ex more video that the sheriff has that we can see more uh, once we get the case underway. In your experience, is it common for an inmate to be held in a cell without a toilet for two weeks? I've never seen it. In 2007, the United States Department of Justice and the National Institute of Corrections published a Jail Standards and Inspection Programs Resource and Implementation Guide. It states that the jail setting and conditions are not meant to be punishment. The function of a jail is to safely and humanely hold inmates remanded to its custody by the courts. Some of these inmates have only been charged with a crime, but not yet adjudicated. The jail holds these inmates to ensure their appearance in court and or to protect the community until their next court appearance or until they are otherwise released. For jail inmates who have been convicted of crimes, the punishment is isolation from society rather than the conditions of confinement. Holding inmates under inhumane conditions, like cold, dark, dank cells, is inappropriate and illegal. I want to emphasize that point. When someone is convicted of a crime, their punishment is handed down by the court in the form of either monetary restitution or other consideration like property or physical labor or confinement. Corrections officers and jailers are the administrators of the facilities and programs where that restitution, literally a debt to society, is paid off. Corrections officers and jailers exist to maintain the facilities and provide a safe and healthy environment for paying off that debt by monitoring and inspecting conditions and maintaining order and discipline. While from time to time, a corrections officer may need to use things like force or isolation to maintain order and discipline, Use of those tools is limited to that purpose. In other words, a guard's taser or baton may be used when necessary to regain control and restore order within the facility, but those are not tools to be used to extract additional restitution in the form of punishment, pain, or torture for an inmate's crimes. Likewise, Isolation may be utilized to further segregate an inmate from others for a period of time for appropriate and documented reasons. But jailers and corrections officers are not legally allowed to be punishers. 
they do not have the authority to add or inflict punishment that has not been handed down by the court, no matter what crimes an inmate may have been convicted of, so that the use of those tools does not become or imply infliction of additional punishment, corrections institutions must establish, strictly follow, and monitor policies and procedures that govern the use of those tools. Violating those policies is typically viewed as excessive force, torture, and or cruel and unusual punishment. While Tony had only been charged with a crime and had not yet been adjudicated, all inmates are guaranteed certain rights and protections under the Constitution. One of those is the right to humane conditions. Correctional facilities must uphold standards of cleanliness and safety, ensuring they are free from issues such as overcrowding, rodent and insect infestations, fire hazards, and inadequate sanitation facilities. Tony was confined to the drunk tank and booking, which is only intended and suitable for temporary holding. He had no sanitary facilities. He was left to urinate and defecate in the same small floor space that he was also expected to eat and sleep on. There is another cell in the booking area that also lacks a toilet and sink. And per our interviews with former employees and inmates at the Walker County Sheriff's Office, it is not unusual for both cells to be used to house inmates for extended periods of time, like Tony was subjected to. We can confirm we've interviewed a number of people who claim to have been held in those two cells for extended periods of time who were not allowed adequate trips to the bathroom. They said they were forced to urinate and defecate on themselves and then were forced to sit in it for long periods of time. This is a direct violation of the protections guaranteed to every single one of us under the U.S. Constitution. According to the complaint, Tony's false teeth were confiscated after he was tased. As a result of years of methamphetamine abuse and personal neglect, Tony had lost his teeth and he used a set of false teeth to eat. He was wearing the teeth at the time of his arrest. Without his teeth, he would have been unable to chew solid food effectively. One of the first video clips that the estate's lawyers have of Tony, thanks to the heroism of the corrections officer who wanted his family and the public to know what happened to him, shows Tony naked, being dragged out of a holding cell number five, likely on or around January 15th, and tased by Braxton Key. Key is still inside the cell and not yet visible in the screenshot below. The corrections officer in the black shirt supervising the tasing is Captain Jotty Tidwell. Notably, Captain Jotty Tidwell is the spouse of Chuck Tidwell, an Alabama state fire marshal 
and former investigator with the Walker County Sheriff's Office, who no doubt played a pivotal role in the Eric Cates case. As reported by the Daily Mountain Eagle, Jotty has been employed by the Walker County Jail since 2012. The complaint continues to unveil additional statements of fact that shed light on the circumstances Tony encountered during his confinement at the Walker County Jail. The tasing caused Tony's false teeth to pop out. Instead of being returned to Tony, the teeth were evidently recovered and placed by deputies in a property bag. After Tony's death, his mother received the teeth in a sealed property bag bearing the date of 1-15-23, indicating that Tony's teeth were placed in the bag by jail personnel on that date. After January 15th, to the extent he was provided solid food at the jail, Tony would not have been able to chew it effectively. Another clip shows Braxton Key and Morgan Madison dragging Tony from the shower located in a bathroom in the booking area. Tony continued to suffer from serious medical and psychiatric needs while incarcerated as a pretrial detainee at the jail. These needs were obvious to every corrections officer and all jail personnel who came into contact with him. Over the past two weeks, we have consulted with numerous decorated and experienced current and former correctional officers who possess extensive correctional management experience, having worked in various state and county correctional facilities throughout Alabama. These interviews were conducted off the record with the intention of gaining a comprehensive understanding of industry standards and practices related to the issues that have been brought to light following Tony's tragic death. Despite their qualifications, none of these esteemed individuals could provide a valid explanation for the confiscation of Tony's dentures. One of the officers did offer a valid scenario in which the dentures might not have been left in the inmate's possession at all times. However, he was insistent that, under proper management, Tony's dentures would have been provided to him at every meal. Both officers had viewed the footage depicting Tony being tased and expressed unmitigated outrage and shock over the disturbing events captured on camera. It's important to note again that inmates have the right to adequate medical and mental health care. Depriving a prisoner of medical care is a violation of the individual's Eighth Amendment rights. The Eighth Amendment protects individuals and prisoners from cruel and unusual punishment. As we shared earlier, the Director of Operations of the Walker County Sheriff's Office indicated that Tony would receive mental health treatment and care during his time in their jail. 
we asked plaintiff's attorney, John Goldfarb, about this. Do you know if Mr. Mitchell received any mental health care while he was in the jail? Not that I know of. The sad thing about it is the whole reason that the police were called is his cousin thought that he was having a mental health crisis. So he called the police for help. And police arrived. And whatever happened at that situation, we don't know. He ended up being taken to jail. It's obvious that he needed mental health treatment. And I don't know if he was ever received any mental health treatment. We'll have to wait and get the records from the jail to see if he received mental health treatment. The complaint notes that in an attempt to cover up the truth, Walker County Sheriff's Office Public Information Officer T.J. Armstrong released a false statement that Tony was alert and conscious when he left the jail and lied to Tony's family about his condition. The complaint lists additional statements of fact to support this claim. Defendant Armstrong the sheriff's communication officer, and his authorized agent for making statements to the public provided a statement to news media regarding Tony's death, quoting in part as follows. On Thursday, January 27th, an inmate in the Walker County Jail was provided a routine medical check by jail medical staff. Medical staff determined the inmate needed to be transported to the hospital for further evaluation. The inmate was alert and conscious when he left the facility and arrived at the hospital. Shortly after arrival at the hospital, the inmate suffered a medical emergency and became unresponsive. Life-saving efforts were performed by hospital staff, and the inmate was ultimately revived. Unfortunately, a short time later, the inmate passed away. This statement is false, as Tony was not alert and conscious when he left the facility and arrived at the hospital. I want to note here that Tony was not receiving a routine medical check. The Walker County Sheriff's Office does not have medical staff on site 24 hours a day, and medical staff is not scheduled to be working within the Walker County Jail at 4 a.m. The fact is that shortly before 4 a.m. on January 26th, jail staff made urgent phone calls to various medical staff members requesting that they come to the jail to see a sick inmate. According to our sources, medical personnel typically commence their daily rounds between 5.30 and 6 a.m., a claim supported by the arrival time of the nurse on duty that day. It appears that the only piece of truth in all that Armstrong and the Walker County Sheriff's Office told the public was that Tony had died. Tony was declared dead on Thursday, January 26th at 1.15 p.m., at Walker Baptist Medical Center. At some point that day, Steve Mitchell, Tony's cousin, who had called 911, received a call from Defendant Armstrong 
who was at the hospital with Tony. Armstrong told Steve that for the last week and a half, quote, we've had a time with Tony. Armstrong told Steve that Tony had refused to eat, that he had refused to speak with jail personnel, and that he had allegedly refused to consent to a psychiatric evaluation. Armstrong described an incident when Tony had allegedly thrown feces at jail personnel. Given Armstrong's lack of credibility, it's necessary to scrutinize every statement he has ever made. However, let's consider the possibility that Tony did indeed throw feces at jail personnel. In this scenario, we must acknowledge the following facts. Tony was grappling with severe mental health issues, undergoing drug withdrawal, and was placed in a cell that failed to meet long-term confinement requirements. This cell lacked a toilet or sink, and they kept him there for a prolonged period of two weeks. Furthermore, Tony's teeth were removed. He was kept naked and paraded around booking and subjected to excessive and unjustifiable tasing. In these abhorrent conditions, he was forced to defecate on the same floor where he had to sit, eat, and sleep in his own waste. One must consider how long they would endure such conditions before lashing out. Given the inhumane, unsanitary, illegal, and immoral treatment that Tony experienced, it is understandable why he may have resorted to such behavior. In fact, it can be argued that the actions of the Walker County Sheriff's Office employees and leadership were an invitation for this kind of reaction. If Tony did throw feces at them, it can be seen as a self-inflicted response to their abusive behavior. According to additional statements of fact, Armstrong made additional statements to Tony's family. Armstrong further told Steve that it was, quote, the worst case of addiction we've ever seen. Showing that Armstrong was aware that Tony had been hypothermic prior to his transportation to jail, Armstrong told Steve that Tony's body temperature had started dropping that morning and that they'd had to carry him to the hospital. The only way for Tony's body temperature to have started dropping to 72 degrees in such a short period of time was for him to have been placed in a restraint chair in the jail's kitchen walk-in freezer or similar frigid environment and left there for hours. Armstrong asked Steve to carry Tony's mother to the hospital because, in Armstrong's words, quote, Tony's not going to live. During the weeks after Tony's death, I exchanged messages with Armstrong about his death two different times, and I also received a phone call from him 
All of these contacts were initiated by Armstrong, and in all instances, he stated that the conversations were off the record. I've had many off-the-record conversations with Armstrong over the last few years, and I'll be the first to say that my communications with T.J. Armstrong over the years have been pleasant. He's always been kind, and unlike others, he has never shunned me or treated me disrespectfully, even when we were at great odds with the department over their handling of the Eric Cates and other investigations. I've never made any of the communications or the information I received from TJ Public. However, if you contact us off the record with the clear intent to purposely deceive, you lose that off-the-record privilege, especially if the communications are designed to help mislead the public and conceal a crime. On January 30th, right after a CBS 42 reporter published a story about the death of Tony Mitchell, I received a message from T.J. Armstrong that included a link to the story. The news article was titled, An Alabama Man Was Arrested During a Welfare Check. Two Weeks Later, He Was Dead. T.J. said, I know some of the Walker County haters are going to send you this. This reporter is absolutely sickening. There are so many holes in this story, and it's nowhere near the way he made it spin. Um, hello? The guy was arrested because he shot at our deputies. He died of a medical issue at the hospital. He's trying to make it sound like we killed the dude. Sorry, Amber, I'm just venting, LOL. Didn't mean to sound like I'm griping at you. I asked him... If they knew yet what happened to Tony, he said no, and that's off the record, of course. The guy's own mama said he'd been doing drugs for years and figured he would have been dead long before now. When she got to the hospital, they were doing compressions. She told them to pull the plug. I was shocked at that message. Why would he say that about Tony's mother? At the time I received the message, I had no idea that the statement Armstrong had released to the media was untrue, but I knew from reading so many comments after his arrest from people who knew Tony that he was suffering from mental illness as well as drug addiction, and I also knew that Tony's family had to be suffering. His comment seemed gossipy and callous. TJ also sent me a message explaining that the Walker County Sheriff's Office wants to be transparent, but it's always at their risk of the reporter's opinion and bias. On February 9th, CBS 42 released another news story in which they described the video showing a seemingly lifeless Tony Mitchell being carried out of the Walker County Jail by jailers. The story pointed out the major discrepancy between the statement released by the sheriff's office stating Tony was alert and conscious versus what the video shows occurred, but the news station did not publish the actual video. I commented on the news story and asked, where's the video? 
I will admit that I had already seen the video myself by this time and knew how disturbing it was. Within a few minutes of leaving that comment on the CBS 42 post on Facebook, I received a private message from TJ Armstrong. He said, I'd be interested in seeing the video too, LOL. I'd love to see a video of inmate Anthony Mitchell being unconscious. Since I had seen the video myself, I was taken aback by these messages. I asked him, You're saying you have video of him leaving there conscious and alert? TJ replied, No, I don't have any videos at all of him either way. They're saying he was unconscious. I asked him, Isn't the jail under full surveillance? But before he probably even had a chance to read that reply, he called me. At the time, I, along with many others, had knowledge that TJ and Nick Smith and many others at the sheriff's office were all well aware of the video and that they had seen it. This information was later validated by the second suit filed on behalf of the whistleblower jailer who recorded the video and released it. According to her lawsuit, while at work on Tuesday night, February 7th, at around 9.45 p.m., investigator Carl Carpenter and officer T.J. Armstrong went to booking to speak with her Lieutenant Phillips to tell her they needed plaintiff to come upstairs to speak with them. Carpenter and Armstrong were waiting for her in Sheriff Nick Smith's office. Carpenter told Armstrong to show plaintiff the video, which he had on his phone. Notably, according to the lawsuit, T.J. Armstrong had that video on his phone two days prior to contacting me. I answered Armstrong's phone call, and because I knew he was lying to me, for the first time ever, I recorded our conversation. I mean, and all this is off the record, obviously, but first of all, how can you publish a video with somebody that's unconscious or conscious, whatever? And second, if they publish a video, they're interfering with an illegal investigation. I mean, obviously, we can, when the time is up for their investigation, they can find a formal records request. Any citizen can, to my knowledge, and we can release that, you know? Anyway, I'm just bitten. I'm sorry. But, I mean, what's the video going to show? Exactly. That's what I want to know. But, I mean, how have you not seen it? Uh, nobody sent it to me. I don't guess. I mean, I, where would I see it? Do you have it? I mean, what I'm getting at is you should have access to the video of him leaving the sheriff's office. Oh, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I will have access to that, but I haven't, I mean, I haven't went down to leave the cameras. I can get somebody to pull the camera for me, but I haven't particularly went and done that. I mean, that's not. I mean, I would think that'd be the first thing you wanted to see if somebody was claiming they had video of him unconscious. Well, yeah, but I just saw that article right now when you did, so I haven't had time to do any of that. Gotcha. Yeah, I just saw the video, or the thing saying that there was a video like five minutes ago. 
And since I saw your comment, that's that's when I saw it, and that's when I sent you that message. I was like, "What in the world?" I mean, you know, if they have a video, I want to see it. Absolutely, I do too. I want to see their video. No, we wouldn't be able to release anything um, until after Elia has an investigation. But there's no problem. The jail is under. I think we've got nice cats, maybe. Absolutely, we would have a problem doing that. Well, that's what I'm it saying. Is. If he's not, if he wasn't, if he was alert and conscious, that should be very easy to put to bed. Mm-hmm. At the time, I suspected Armstrong was trying to get me to admit I had the video. We learned that very next day that the Walker County Sheriff's Office served a search warrant to an employee at another city police department within Walker County because the sheriff's office learned that this employee allegedly had the video on their phone. According to numerous accounts, the police chief for that department looked at the warrant, challenged the validity of it, and refused to let them take his employee's phone. While I can't say with certainty exactly what caused the chief to challenge the validity of the warrant, It is common knowledge among many in the area that the warrants issued related to this video being shared were not on the up and up, and the Walker County Sheriff's Office officials were accused of doing some pretty underhanded things to get those warrants issued in the first place. The fact that Armstrong and the others at the Walker County Sheriff's Office had to resort to such blatant lies and deception raises serious questions about the true nature of Tony's death. If everything was straightforward and Tony died of a sudden medical condition, then what was the rationale behind the elaborate cover-up and the dissemination of falsehoods? The truth must be uncovered and exposed, and those responsible for any wrongdoing must be held accountable. It is vital to pursue transparency and justice to ensure that similar incidents do not happen again, and the public can have faith in the integrity of our law enforcement agencies. In a democratic society, Law enforcement agencies must be honest and transparent with the public because they are public servants who work for and are funded by the people they serve. It is essential for law enforcement agencies to maintain the trust and confidence of the public they serve. The public has the right to know what law enforcement agencies are doing in their communities, how they are using their resources, and what policies and procedures they are following. The public also has the right to know if law enforcement agencies are acting in accordance with the law and if they are treating people fairly and with respect. I think the leaked surveillance videos and the others that have yet to be released leave no question that the Walker County Sheriff's Office was doing neither of those things. According to the additional statements of fact, TJ made additional untruthful statements about the details of Tony's death. It says, Armstrong also falsely told Steve that when deputies got Tony to the hospital, 
the doctor had asked Tony to sit up, and Tony had sat up. And at that point, he had a massive heart attack, but that for now, they were keeping him alive. The complaint also notes that the jail surveillance video shows that Tony was not alert and conscious when he left the jail. This alarming video has been published extensively by local, national, and international media. The continuation of the statement of facts describes what can be viewed in this video. A video clip from the jail security camera system shows jail transport officers Jeremy Farley and Richard Holtzman carrying Tony's limp body into the garage area of the jail on the morning of January 26th, while Benjamin Shoemaker and Dayton Wakefield assist them with opening and closing doors. No medical personnel appear in this portion of the security camera footage. Clearly in no hurry, Farley and Holtzman move without urgency as they carry Tony through a doorway into the loading and unloading area. Tony is not handcuffed. Ahead of them, Benjamin Shoemaker opens the rear door of a Sheriff's Department prisoner transport SUV. The deputies carry Tony with one on either side, each holding him by the jail uniform at the shoulders and hips. Tony's shackled legs remain bent in the air. As the deputies near the SUV, they lay Tony on the ground beside the SUV, letting the head fall back on the cement while they stand around, seeming to deliberate how best to place the body in the vehicle. Tony lies between them on the cement floor next to the SUV's open rear passenger door as the deputies confer. The deputies lift Tony's body and place it, still in the same bent, seated position, across the back seat of the Sheriff's Department SUV. The deputies appear to push the body into the SUV, adjusting its position before closing the door. Again, moving with no particular urgency, the deputies walk around to get into the SUV, and the clip ends. This video clip captured events that took place around 8.55 a.m. on January 26th, after Tony had languished for five hours or more on a bare cement floor as his life trickled away to the complete indifference of numerous corrections officers and medical staff, as explained in greater detail below. The lawsuit states that Tony's heart stopped before he arrived at the hospital and that it never restarted. Dr. Timothy Jordan, the ER provider, made the following note that is contained in Tony's medical records. I have limited information on this patient other than was provided by sheriff deputies that accompanied the patient to the hospital. I was told by one of the deputies that the patient has been incarcerated since January 12th. I was also told by the deputies 
that the patient had not been eating or drinking for several days. He was brought to the emergency room by sheriff deputies in a car for evaluation. One of our nurses noted the sheriff's moving the patient out of the vehicle and putting him in a wheelchair, and he went outside and offered to move him to a stretcher. At that point, he was noted to have agonal respirations, breathing two to four times a minute. He was rushed into the ER and moved to our stretcher. He was unresponsive and pulseless and cold to the touch. CPR was started and handcuffs were removed. His mother arrived in the emergency room about three and a half hours into resuscitation and gave additional history. She said her son had been drug addicted for years. He had developed multiple abscesses. He has been suicidal. He had recently been confused. She has not heard from him in weeks. She requested we not continue resuscitation. Another note in the file states that during the attempted resuscitation, patient was unresponsive but occasionally made some agonal movements, including swallowing and minor movements of an arm or leg. This is while CPR with external compression devices in progress. Initial rectal temperature was 72 degrees Fahrenheit, 22 degrees centigrade, and appeared to have vomitus on his uniform. Contrary to Armstrong's false statement to Steve, at no point do the medical records indicate that Tony sat up or that he had a heart attack while at the jail. Rather, the notes state, pupils were initially fixed and dilated, but became responsive after CPR was initiated, and the patient remained in a systole PEA and occasionally V-fib. No spontaneous pulse was ever palpated. The doctor's notes further state, there was never any purposeful movement or response to pain. As Armstrong told me and others, Tony's mom did arrive at the hospital and ask that they not continue resuscitation efforts. However, evidence provided in the hospital records from the doctor who treated Tony paint a much different picture of things than what I felt T.J. Armstrong was leading me to believe. His message to me led me to believe that Tony could have possibly been resuscitated, but his mother stopped the efforts. Per the emergency room physician, Tony had no pulse upon arrival and had agonal respirations breathing two to four times per minute when he arrived at the hospital. His mother arrived at the hospital three and a half hours after Tony. Armstrong asked one of her family members to bring her there, and he told them to get her there because, quote, Tony wasn't going to make it. Tony had no pulse when he arrived at the hospital, and according to medical records, his heart was never successfully restarted. Is resuscitation even possible for a patient in that condition? 
I can't imagine that I would have asked doctors to continue efforts under those circumstances. The statements of fact continue. As quoted earlier, the doctor's notes state, I'm not sure what circumstances the patient was held in incarceration, but it is difficult to understand a rectal temperature of 72 degrees Fahrenheit, 22 degrees centigrade, when someone is incarcerated in jail. The cause of his hypothermia is not clear. It is possible he had an underlying medical condition resulting in hypothermia. I do not know if he could have been exposed to a cold environment. I do believe that hypothermia was the ultimate cause of his death. Another section of the lawsuit states that Tony's body temperature was 72 degrees Fahrenheit and that there is no other explanation for that other than for him to have spent hours in a freezer or a similar frigid environment. This is a key point that reveals how the sheriff's office has attempted to cherry-pick facts to support their false narrative. Their statements repeatedly say that Tony died at the hospital rather than the jail. Technically, this is true, even though the emergency room physician stated he had no pulse on arrival. The discrepancy is explained by Tony's temperature, which falls in the severe hypothermic range. In most cases, a patient in hypothermia cannot be pronounced dead, even when other signs indicate clinical death has already occurred. Here are the statements of fact listed in support of the argument that Tony must have spent hours in a freezer or other frigid environment. The heroic corrections officer who preserved the security footage after Tony's death last saw him alive at 6 a.m. on the morning of Wednesday, January 25th, when she went off her shift. At that time, Tony was awake and talkative in the isolation cell in the booking area and not in any evident distress. 72 degrees is approximately room temperature in the Walker County Jail. The only way for a living person's body temperature to fall to near room temperature and for the person to still be marginally alive as indicated in the medical records and not a corpse that has cooled to match the temperature of its surroundings is for that person to have been exposed to frigid temperatures for an extended time. Based on these circumstances, it appears that Tony was strapped into a restraint chair during the night of January 25th to January 26th and placed in the jail's kitchen walk-in freezer or similar frigid environment for an extended time, possibly as punishment for deputies who had, quote, had a time with Tony, or as punishment for allegedly shooting at deputies. In the next section of the lawsuit, 
it's noted that at least five hours passed from the time Tony was removed from the frigid environment until he was transported to the hospital, and it includes a number of statements of fact to support that. Denzel Mitchell was the jail supervisor on duty overnight from January 25th to January 26th. The other corrections officers on duty that night include Braxton Key, Bailey Ganey, Catherine Klingen, and Jacob Smith. Each of these corrections officers knows exactly what happened to Tony during that horrific night. Each one of them was deliberately indifferent to his obvious, serious medical needs. Each of them, at a minimum, failed to intervene in an act of horrific abuse committed by one or more of their fellow corrections officers. According to incident reports viewed by the corrections officer who preserved the videos, Jacob Smith and Braxton Key claimed to have found Tony unresponsive at feeding time around 4 a.m. The jail kitchen typically is opened at 3 a.m. to prepare food for the morning breakfast run. This means that after Tony was removed from the walk-in freezer or other frigid environment, at least five hours passed before he was transported to Walker County Medical Center, despite his obvious serious medical need for emergency medical treatment throughout that time. Hour by hour, Tony's chances of survival dwindled, as captured in a series of chilling surveillance videos preserved by a heroic corrections officer so that Tony's family would know what happened to him. According to the lawsuit, they have security video footage that shows Tony lying on the cement floor of his cell as corrections officers Braxton Key and Denzel Mitchell laugh at his condition. There are numerous statements of fact listed in support of this, and also three still images from video that hasn't been publicly released yet. Here are the included statements of fact. The first video that the estate has from the morning of January 26th was captured at approximately 4 a.m., This is after Tony had been returned to the isolation cell in the booking area from the freezer or other frigid environment. The video shows Braxton Key leading Alicia Heron, the jail's nurse practitioner, to the holding cell in which Tony can be seen lying on the bare cement floor. Supervisor Denzel Mitchell is also present and supervising. At various points, Key and Mitchell can be seen clowning and laughing as Tony lies motionless and naked on the bare cement floor in the open cell behind them, obviously in severe medical distress and in need of immediate emergency medical treatment. Alicia Heron, the jail nurse practitioner, enters the cell and spends a minute or two inside with Tony, but appears to provide no medical treatment 
and does not summon an ambulance, even though Tony's severe medical distress is obvious. At the end of this first video from around 4 a.m., Tony, lying naked among what appears to be piles of trash on the floor of his isolation cell, can be seen raising his head, peering out at deputies as if pleading for help. But Braxton Key closes the door of the cell and turns out the light, leaving Tony alone in the dark. The lawsuit claims that security footage from around the time of the 6 a.m. shift change shows multiple corrections officers and medical personnel exhibiting deliberate indifference. In support of these, these additional statements of fact were provided. The next video provided to the estate appears to have been taken around the time of the 6 a.m. shift change. It shows Deputy Shoemaker opening the door of the cell and peering inside. In a subsequent video from around the same time, Shoemaker and Morgan Madison can be seen entering the cell with a sleeping mat. The morning of January 26th, as Tony lay dying of hypothermia, appears to be the first time he was provided any kind of padding to lay down on during his two weeks of incarceration at the Walker County Jail. Prior to this, he had had only the bare concrete floor of the isolation cell. In this video taken between 6 and 7 a.m., nurse Brad Allred stands at the door of the cell looking in at Tony but provides no medical treatment, though Tony's need for emergency medical intervention is obvious. Instead of calling an ambulance or providing Tony with medical attention, Benjamin Shoemaker and Morgan Madison focused their energies on sweeping trash out of the cell in which the lights are now turned off and cleaning it, evidently sweeping or mopping around Tony as he lies dying on the floor, removing signs of the squalor in which Tony was forced to spend his final days. On the very day when the Walker County Sheriff's Office dispatched a deputy to personally serve the termination notice to the courageous correctional officer who exposed the cover-up of Tony's death, the said agency also shared a post on Facebook, and the subject of this post is something I wanted to discuss with the plaintiff's attorney, John Goldfarb. On February 10th, the Walker County Sheriff's Office, they named Madison Morgan, who's one of the jailers, um, they named him Corrections Officer of the Month. And they also promoted him to Karen's spot on the CERT team just one day after they fired her. Morgan Madison was also seen in these videos, um, I believe, according to the lawsuit. You know, he was in there helping clean up um, the evidence, I guess, the, the cell. While Tony, while Mr. Mitchell was uh, laying there naked on the floor. I mean, what do you think that those actions... And I believe there's also a video, if I'm correct, 
of um, him manhandling Mr. Mitchell, if I'm correct, and who it is and who it appears to be. So I don't know if the, the powers that be, the sheriff, was aware of this, but it's certainly clear now that the person that they gave this award to, they may want to reconsider it. In a subsequent video taken that morning, Shoemaker and Madison can be seen entering the cell where the lights have now been turned on. Josh Jones stands outside the cell looking in. Haley Tidwell, the daughter of Captain Jody Tidwell, also stands looking in at Tony. Captain Tidwell, wearing a black shirt, is also present and spends several minutes inside the cell. A female nurse, as yet unidentified, stands at the door of the cell, looking in, but does not enter. The video subsequently shows Morgan Madison entering the cell, carrying an orange jail uniform. This likely occurs at approximately 7.45 a.m. Brad Allred, the nurse, can be seen passing with the pill call cart. None of these individuals calls an ambulance or otherwise takes steps to provide Tony with the immediate emergency medical treatment he so obviously needs. It isn't until around 8.30 a.m. when corrections officers finally remove Tony from the cell, but they return him right back to it so they can bring in a female inmate for booking. In the video taken around 8.30 a.m., Shoemaker rolls a wheelchair into the cell. Shoemaker, with the help of either Farley or Holtzman, then brings Tony out of the cell in the wheelchair. For the first time in any of these videos taken over two weeks of detention, Tony is now dressed. Deputies have placed an orange jail uniform on him. Tony's body falls out of the wheelchair outside the cell. The deputies lift him back into it. Deputies can be seen shackling Tony's feet as his body makes slow, seemingly spasmodic movements. Tony is still alive at this point. After initially placing him in the chair, deputies pick Tony up and drag him back inside the cell evidently to conceal his presence as the new female detainee is brought into the booking area and processed, further delaying Tony's access to the emergency medical treatment he obviously urgently requires. Again, none of the deputies, Shoemaker, Wakefield, Farley, or Holtzman, calls for an ambulance. Even after the female detainee has been processed, Shoemaker, Wakefield, Farley, and Holtzman show no urgency, but stand around talking outside the closed cell door for a while. At long last, the four deputies finally bring Tony out again and carry him through the door to the sally port to place him in the sheriff's department SUV for transport to the hospital as previously described. According to the next section of the lawsuit, 
Tony's heart has stopped by the time he arrived at the hospital over five hours after he had been removed from the frigid environment. By the time deputies arrived with Tony at the hospital at 9.23 a.m., over five hours after deputies were first captured on video, laughing and joking while Tony lay naked on the cement floor of his cell in obvious need of emergency medical treatment. He had no pulse and only agonal respirations of two to four breaths per minute. It's worth taking a moment to highlight another unusual aspect of this case. Upon reviewing the leaked surveillance video, it was observed that the jailers loaded Tony into the back of the Walker County Sheriff's Department transport vehicle at approximately 8.55 a.m. However, according to the hospital records, Tony arrived at the hospital 28 minutes later at 9.23 a.m., This raises a legitimate question. Why did it take so long for them to get to the hospital, especially since the hospital is less than three miles away from the jail and a mere seven-minute drive, according to Google Maps? There are also numerous short detours and routes that could have been taken in the event of an unlikely traffic obstruction. This is a significant cause for concern, and it is essential that this additional delay in getting Tony medical attention is further investigated. Surely, after the Vicki and Casey White debacle in nearby Lauderdale County, Alabama, all inmate transport vehicles are equipped with GPS tracking, the public deserves clarity and transparency regarding what transpired during the transportation of Tony to the hospital because the time discrepancy clearly indicates they didn't drive directly there. The statements of fact continue with more pertinent details. Deputies did not inform hospital staff that Tony had been placed in a freezer or other frigid environment or that he was hypothermic. Doctors learned Tony was hypothermic only when they took his temperature after beginning emergency resuscitation efforts. Learning that Tony was hypothermic caused physicians to immediately change their course of treatment as the measures they had initially employed were inappropriate to resuscitate a person who is severely hypothermic. The sheriff has a policy or practice of deliberate indifference to the serious medical needs of those incarcerated in its jail and a policy or practice of using excessive force and inflicting unnecessary physical harm on inmates housed there. As a further example of the policy or practices of deliberate indifference to medical needs at the jail, A woman named Autumn Harris passed away in the Walker County Jail on December 5, 2018, of untreated pneumonia after being incarcerated for 22 days without corrections officers obtaining emergency medical treatment. 
as an example of the policy or practice of using excessive force and inflicting unnecessary and even sadistic harm on inmates housed there. A video obtained by the individual who preserved the videos of what happened to Tony shows the use of unnecessary and unreasonable force against another inmate, Jamal Scott. The video depicts an officer, Defendant Richard Holtzman, using his fist to strike an inmate who was handcuffed and under officer's complete control after the inmate had been sprayed with chemical irritant, beaten with a baton, and was bleeding profusely. In a further example of a policy or practice of using excessive force and inflicting unnecessary and sadistic harm on inmates, an inmate named Hollis Chadwick Smith filed a January 17, 2023, habeas corpus petition alleging that Jacob Smith and Denzel Mitchell sexually assaulted me by punching me in the penis and Sergeant Mitchell grabbed my penis and twisted as CO kicked me in my anal butt. In a further example of a policy or practice of deliberate indifference to serious medical needs of inmates, Hollis Chadwick Smith filed a second February 8, 2023, habeas corpus petition alleging that I have cancer and was stated to make appointment with oncology, been locked up two months, medical refuses treatment, and complaining that he is losing weight, can't hardly walk, can't eat, dying. Armstrong also participated in the scheme to deny Tony's constitutional rights by giving false information to the family about his condition, including telling Tony's cousin Steve that when deputies got Tony to the hospital, the doctor had asked Tony to sit up, and Tony had sat up, and at that point, he had a massive heart attack, but that for now, they were keeping him alive. Sheriff Nick Smith, investigator Carl Carpenter, and T.J. Armstrong participated in the scheme to deny Tony's constitutional rights and ratified the conduct of the deputies who violated Tony's constitutional rights by investigating the corrections officer who preserved the video of Tony being carried into the Sally Port, along with the other videos referenced above, and retaliating against that person by interrogating her, confiscating her phone, and imaging its contents, suspending her, terminating her employment for allegedly leaking the video contradicting Armstrong's statement, and sending an officer to intimidate her. The remainder of the named defendants participated in the scheme to deny Tony's constitutional rights by delaying seeking medical treatment and failing to intervene, for nearly five hours as Tony lay dying on the concrete floor of the cell, ensuring that Tony did not survive to tell the story of what happened to him. Sheriff Nick Smith ratified the conduct of Morgan Madison by selecting him 
as the Correctional Officer of the Month immediately after these events. After we had a chance to review the full lawsuit, I asked attorney John Goldfarb about the timeline and process of federal court. Explain the process to me. I mean, approximately how long does a a case like this typically take? And, you know, how does it proceed forward? What happens next? First step is we file the lawsuit. Second step is they'll answer the lawsuit and point out things that may be wrong with the lawsuit. I mean, it could be simple things that we misspelled people's names or whatever it is. And we may uh, amend the complaint at that point to be clearer and uh, get some corrections in the complaint that need to be corrected after they point to the cell. But they will generally deny a lot of the stuff. And then what will happen is eventually we'll get to the point where the judge will set what's called a scheduling order and set up the time to do the case. And generally a trial would be set about a year out from the date the complaint was initially filed, somewhere in that range. Sometimes a little longer, sometimes less, depending on the complexity of the case. And we will then engage in what's called discovery. And so the first thing that happens is we send them some requests for documents and requests for answers to questions. They're called interrogatories. Then the next thing that will happen is we'll exchange paper discovery, which is that's what it is. And then we will go into the deposition phase of the case when we ask, have somebody sat down with a court reporter, swear under oath, and we take the deposition of the sheriff and other people who are named in the case. Then they, a lot of times they will file something called a motion for summary judgment. And we will respond to that saying the court should not, they'll be asking, well, you should throw the case out. We'll say, no, you shouldn't throw the case out because here's all this evidence and showing a disputed facts. And the court's required to take the plaintiff's position as true. And then eventually we'll end up in front of a jury and we will go to trial and try the case and let the jury hear all this and get, let the jury see all this, which is something I don't get to say much. And I'm assuming that you are going to subpoena like the body cam footage as well as the footage from the camera system within the jail. Yes, we have sent a letter to, we sent two actually, we sent one today. I sent one before we filed the case asking them to preserve Initially, all body cam footage related to him, which would be every place he ever walked or was. And then the second one, now that we know there's the pattern and practice of abuse in this jail, according to folks who've been calling potential witnesses. So we've asked for body cam footage and footage from the videos of the entire facility. So any electronic recordings that's preserved on their system they should preserve it. I just hope the sheriff has preserved all the video. So if if what we're saying is not true, we will see it on the video. We All we're asking for is the absolute truth to come out. And the one thing that doesn't lie is video. And if, if the videos, they're using the video for... I don't know exactly what reason they've got video in this jail. 
but it's there to to shine a light on the truth. And all they had to do is turn it all over, and then we can clearly see what's happened to Mr. Mitchell and everybody else. If additional videos surface that show um, actions by others that that played into this event, is it possible that others could be named in this lawsuit and added to it? Yes. I'm, I'm sure it will be. It will happen. That others will... And some of the people that we've initially named may not end up being in the case forever, depending on what they have to say about it. But others very well could be named once we get additional video or testimony showing that they also engaged in abuse. Things are very early in the case, though. While the details of the lawsuit are truly disheartening, it has brought to light a concerning pattern of behavior within the Walker County Jail. Since the public disclosure, numerous accounts have surfaced from individuals who claim to have been subjected to confinement in freezers or coolers. One woman shared that she initially dismissed the claims of two acquaintances who described being locked up in a freezer as too unimaginable to be true. Now that the death of Anthony Mitchell is under investigation by the Federal Bureau of Investigation and the Alabama Bureau of Investigation, we hope that all victims will speak out about any abuse they may have endured behind the walls of the Walker County Jail. Despite ongoing investigations, Sheriff Nick Smith and the other named individuals in the lawsuit continue to hold their positions, raising concerns that they are still making decisions that directly impact the health and safety of the inmates. It is unacceptable that those potentially responsible for such a tragic and inexcusable death are still working within the jail. Many in the community are calling for swift action and are demanding that Sheriff Nick Smith and the others named in the lawsuit be removed from office. As some individuals have come forward to defend the sheriff in light of recent events, asserting that he cannot possibly be aware of every occurrence that takes place within the walls of the Walker County Jail, which is, after all, Under his direct jurisdiction, we are compelled to raise some pertinent questions. If Sheriff Smith was genuinely unaware of these incidents, and if he unequivocally denounces the maltreatment that occurred under his watch, why did he not take immediate disciplinary action against those directly responsible? Why did he not suspend terminate, or file charges against them. Instead, he names one of them Correctional Officer of the Month. How can the sheriff possibly claim that he was oblivious to these events and does not support the conduct captured on video when he knowingly left the inmates whom he is charged with safeguarding in the care of those who perpetrated acts of mistreatment, neglect, abuse, and ultimately 
the tragic death of Tony Mitchell. I want to point out something that may not be obvious or clear to most. The Office of Sheriff comes with statutory authority and duties dictated by state law, not county or other local government. While the sheriff's budget and humane resources decisions may be controlled by and subject to oversight by the county commission or other county government departments, how the sheriff runs the day-to-day operations of the jail is completely under the control of the sheriff and not subject to the dictates of the local county governing body. The sheriff alone is accountable for what goes on in the county jail. In the same way that a law enforcement officer can hold the driver of a motor vehicle accountable for its safe operation, including obeying laws that the driver may not have been aware of, the sheriff is accountable for what happens in his or her jail. Ignorance is not a valid excuse or defense. Literally, it's the sheriff's job to know what goes on in the jail and act accordingly. A dark cloud of deeply rooted corruption has loomed over Walker County, Alabama for decades. Countless precious lives have been lost with few answers and palpable absence of justice. The number of people whose lives have been devastated by all this extends so much further than most people can comprehend. The people of Walker County, along with concerned individuals from all around the globe, eagerly anticipate the outcome of a thorough investigation being conducted by the Federal Bureau of Investigation and the Alabama State Bureau of Investigation and fully anticipate that justice is deserved and must be served. If you would like to view the videos, the photos that have been released, the full lawsuits, or a list of all the jail deaths that we are aware of, please visit our Facebook page and we will have a post with links to all. We look forward to bringing you the next episode of Season 3, The Disappearance of Jessica Hamby, on March 9th. If you have any information that could help to solve any of the cases we discuss in this podcast, please email me at secretstruecrime at protonmail.com or call our confidential tip line at 205-282-0700. Michael and I will ensure that all information gets to the right place right away. If you are left still wanting even more content, please check us out on Patreon. We have filled it with great information about Jessica and Jeremy, Eric and Gypsy, and Susan and Evan. This podcast is an independent podcast. That means that everything that goes into making this podcast is done and funded by me. All the investigative tools and resources are provided by Echo 7 Foxtrot. The tragedies we highlight and investigate have had a tremendous impact on the victims, loved ones, and friends. 
we don't burden them with additional expenses to cover their cases. We donate our time and talents because we want to help and hope to find the answers they need that are so long overdue. For as little as $5 per month, you can receive exclusive access to members-only photos, videos, early access to episodes, and much, much more. By becoming a patron, you too are helping us help these families. Patreon.com slash Secrets Crime. I'll also post the link on our Facebook page. If you are enjoying this podcast, be sure to follow or subscribe in your podcast player of choice and by giving us a five-star rating and review. Follow Secrets True Crime on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Secrets Crime. This episode was co-written by me and Michael Fleming. The audio production for this podcast is by Kane Power at PrecisionPodcasting.com.